Well, Dale Ralph Davis, who I've quoted many times in our study of Kings, he he likens the ending of Second Kings to the dilemma that hairy men have when pulling band-aids off. Um, even bald guys can be hairy. So just so you know, I understand this. I'm becoming more and more like Chewbacca the older I get, I feel like. Um, you, you can take it slowly and just prolong the agony, or you can can just rip it off with one quick, painful, tear-inducing jerk. I, I don't cry, I just but I've seen men cry. Um, yeah. Well, when it comes to finishing the story of Judah's decline and destruction, the writer of Kings seems to take the quick rip-and-jerk method. Um, he doesn't give us lots of details in these final chapters. He doesn't prolong the agony of watching the people of Judah and Jerusalem fall. He just, to use another analogy, he just lands the plane fast and hard. Just slams it into the ground, basically. Like a Delta pilot who's got a tea time to make or something. Uh, he just brings it in. It's like, it's like he just wants to hurry up and get it over with. And and if you think about the purpose of Kings, you think about the original audience to which this writer is writing uh, this account, this narrative that he's writing to people who don't need to be told about what happened to Jerusalem and about the exile in Babylon. He's writing to exiles in Babylon. They they get this. They're living this. So they don't need all of the details about what happened. They lived it. They what they need to know is why this happened. And that's what the writer of Kings has been laboring to do with these exiles in Babylon. He's, he's wanting to make sure that the dots are connected for them. That they see that it, their unfaithfulness, covenant unfaithfulness to the Lord, is why they're in exile. He wants them to see this. And he also wants them, though, to be reminded of God's faithfulness. His covenant faithfulness. And His keeping them. And, the, and that every promise of His word will be fulfilled. He hasn't given up on them. And he's also wanting just to, to warn them of the danger of idolatry and the danger of covenant unfaithfulness. Lest that while they're in Babylon, they begin to, to be appealed, to, to uh, be drawn away to worship the gods of Babylon. And so he's saying, remember what happened. Remember why you're here. Remember why you're out of your homeland. And so he's writing to, to this audience. And so he doesn't linger on these details but all he does, I mean, with, with Josiah's death, the writing on the wall for Jerusalem uh, is, is on the wall for Jerusalem and Judah. They're toast. And so we have these final four kings, and, and they just quickly send the nation into a death spiral here. And that's what we see in these last two chapters. First Kings, first and second Kings together, you remember the story of kings in one word is, is decline. And we've seen it from the very beginning. The book of First Kings began with David dying. And it ends with the nation dying. We've seen some bright spots along the way. Parts of Solomon's reign and all of his glory. We've seen Hezekiah and Josiah and a few other places along the way. But for the most part, the nation has just been spiraling downward. And even the best kings aren't good enough to reverse the course of the nation. A case in point is... We looked at Josiah last week, the most righteous king to reign. They need a better king. 
They need a better king. And we've said that throughout this study, and that's how we're going to frame our time this morning. Just two statements to prepare us for the table and to kind of put our arms around the whole book of Kings and to, and to frame these last two chapters. It's just two points. We need a better king, and we'll see we have a better king. That's all we're looking at this morning. So the first thing, we need a better king. And we're going to look at this morning four lessons from four losers here. The last four kings are disasters. And we're just going to, I'm going to walk through the four kings real quick and we'll read through it together. And then I'll draw four lessons and then we'll go on and look at the fall of Jerusalem. Chapter 23, verse 31. That's where we're going to begin. And I'm just going to kind of spot read. So I'll try to keep you tracking along with me. But verse 31, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Verse 32. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. So the first king, I call him Jehoaz, the Egyptian exile. And we'll see why in a minute. I'll give each of these guys a little nickname. Um, But the Egyptian exile, despite who his father is, Josiah, this godly example of a father, Jehoahaz just turns out to be a disaster of a king. I don't know what kind of relationship Josiah had with his sons. That's not told to us by the kings. But one of the things this shows is we've seen along the way. Having a good father doesn't mean that you're a good kid. Um, and and kids need more than good parents. They need, they need the Lord. And we see that here. But so somehow in three short months, three months, that's all he needs to have this characterized his reign. He did great evil in the sight of the Lord. His throne isn't even hardly warm yet from sitting on it. And we find that this Egyptian Pharaoh, Necho, deposes him. Look in verse 33. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hemoth, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. One talent is about 75 pounds. Verse 34, the end of verse 34, and he took away Jehoahaz, and he came to Egypt and died there. This wasn't because Pharaoh decided he wanted to take out some aggression upon Judah. That's not all of the issue. This really happens because the Lord decided he wanted to take him out. And we know this because in Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 11 and 12, we find that what happens here is happening in fulfillment of the word of the Lord. This is a prophecy from Jeremiah said this was exactly what was going to happen. And we find it happening here according to the word of the Lord. That's boy, isn't that a resounding theme through through kings? Everything happens according to the word of the Lord. I I found in one of the commentaries I was looking at this week, there was a list of all of the. All of the places where prophecies were made and then show, in kings and then showing their fulfillment in kings. And I almost just, you know, it's just a list of verse markers. And I almost just kind of scanned by it and just kept on reading. And I thought, you know, I'm going to look those up. It was worshipful church. I wish I could have printed them there. And if you want to ask me for them later, I'd be glad to send them to you. I'm going to get bombarded with emails now. That's okay. That's a good thing. Good use of email. Um, but I, I just sat there and I just praised the Lord after looking at these verses. God's faithfulness to do according to his word. I, I pulled up that every promise of your word on YouTube and I just sat there and sang along 
my computer, and then I texted or emailed Wade and said, man, we've got to sing this Sunday. So you didn't know. I was there, so you didn't understand why we're singing, but I did. Uh, so, so Jehoahaz, Phil, let's just keep walking. We'll pull in the lessons in a minute. Jehoiakim, the prophet hater, the prophet hater. Verse 34, and Jehoahaz, or excuse me, after Jehoahaz is forcibly removed from the throne by Egypt, Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Verse 35, and Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. So Pharaoh thinks, Pharaoh thinks uh, Jehoaz's brother, this is another one of Josiah's sons, that he'll be a better servant, a better vassal king. And so he, he makes a throne swap in Judah. You, you just realize what happened there? You realize who's in, who seems to be in charge? What a sad statement that is. That, the, that an Egyptian pharaoh is deciding who rules over Judah, God's nation. This is be like, the, like Iran deciding who our next president will be. And, and, and who's, it seems like Pharaoh's in charge. He dominates this section of the narrative. Now we know that the Lord is in charge, but this is where their unfaithfulness is led. So verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Verse 37, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Another son of Josiah's turns out to be a rebel. And from the parallels, we learn more about Jehoiakim's wicked reign. He built this lavish palace for himself while the people suffered. And he didn't even pay the workers for the, the work they did to give him his, his nice pad. And then another scene after he receives a scroll and this scroll is read to him and it's a scroll that contains many of Jeremiah's sermons warning it's God's mercy to him warning him and calling him to repentance what does he do with that he calmly cuts it into pieces burns it in the fire thinks he can he can destroy the word of God he, he tries to capture Jeremiah and imprison him, but he's, God intervenes two times. He kills the prophet Uriah who preached, Jeremiah says, according to all the words of Jeremiah. He's a prophet hater. He hates the word of God. And so it's during his reign that the first wave of deportation happens to Babylon. And so verse 1 of chapter 24, in, in his days... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him. Notice that the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites. Now what's happening there is that the, the Babylonians are too busy dealing with Egypt because Egypt's the bigger threat in the area. And so they're, they're, they're going, they're going to deal with Egypt and they're going to wipe them out. But, but so they sent these other kind of vassal armies to deal with the threat of Judah and this rebellion. So, so it, it's part of Babylon's plan, but what is really happening here in the text is very explicit. It's the Lord who sent them. This is God's doing. And the Lord sent them against Judah to destroy it. 
According to the word of the Lord, there you go, that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers. Third king. Jehoiakin. Jehoiakin. This is who I call the teenage train wreck. No offense teenagers. Um, he's 18 years old when he takes the throne of Judah. And he reigns in Jerusalem for all of three months. But in that three months he manages to really tank things. He, he also verse 9. Did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the sins of his fathers. And it's during his short reign that the second wave of deportation happens to Babylon. And notice how the writer carries, uh, reports this time. You, you see these phrases over and over. Carried off, carried away, captives, carried away, took into captivity, brought captive. Let's just see, verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And, and Nebuchadnezzar himself now... The king himself of Babylon came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. Himself and his mother, what a son, and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, those which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, None remained except the poorest people of the land. Verse 15, And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land. He took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, a thousand of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Three months. Basically, he just reigns long enough to kind of hand over the keys to Babylon. It's yours. It's yours. He just walks away. He's no Hezekiah. Remember Hezekiah when the Assyrians are there and they're threatened to just overrun Jerusalem. What does he do? He cries out to the Lord. God, in your mercy, spare us, Lord. Protect us, save us, God. We don't know what to do. We can't, we can't defend ourselves against this army, God, but you are able. What is, has, what is, what does Jehoiakim do? He just, text says he gave himself up to the king of Babylon. As a result, thousands are carried away to Babylon. Side note, among those that were carried away in the second wave of deportation is the prophet Ezekiel. And he, he was a young priest at the time, but he became, five years later, at the age of 30, he begins to prophesy to the exiles in Babylon. He's explaining to them um, that, that why Jerusalem is doomed. 
and, and why the Shekinah glory of God is departed from the temple. So that's uh, all right. So next up, last king, Zedekiah, the fickle puppet, the fickle puppet. Once again, a pagan ruler selects Judah's king. He's chosen by Nebuchadnezzar. He changes the king's name from Adoniah to Zedekiah. He reigns for 11 years, and he's the fourth consecutive king to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Then the writer adds, verse 20, For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. God's patience has run out. The full force of God's discipline, his judgment is about to come upon the people during Zedekiah's reign. Before Jerusalem is destroyed, the the writer reports upon the siege, verse 1 of chapter 25. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. That's just the beginning of the suffering that happens during Zedekiah's reign. More is said about Zedekiah elsewhere. Jeremiah speaks much of him in Jeremiah 37 to 39. He really didn't want, he didn't like Jeremiah. He imprisoned him. He threw him into a cistern. And yet Jeremiah continued to 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 warn him and to persuade him, plead with him to repent. And the chronicler adds in Second Chronicles thirty six twelve that Zedekiah did not humble himself. Remember O Josiah who humbled himself before the Lord. We're not going to sing again, don't worry. Um, but he humbled Zedekiah did not humble himself before the before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of God. Instead he. Verse 13, stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to God, the text says. He refused to repent. And, and, and despite God's warnings through Jeremiah, stiffened neck, hardened heart, will not return, not turn to God. All four of these kings, the text says, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. God doesn't give Judah, Hezekiah, or Josiah again. They're done. Now, what can we glean from, what are some lessons we can glean from these losers here? All right. And we're losers just like them, so don't, don't get too cocky. First lesson is this, is that God sometimes give, gives wicked leaders long leashes. He sometimes gives wicked leaders long leashes, longer than we think he should. But thank God for his grace to giving us Longer leashes than we deserve. And not snuffing us out the moment we sin. That, that why is he doing this? See, I think there's genuine offer. I don't think the, the, the warnings and the pleadings from these prophets to repent and return to the Lord. I don't think that's just theatrics. Uh, yes, God is sovereign and he's going to accomplish his will. But, but don't, don't, don't think that those are empty words. He's giving them time. He's urging. He's calling them to return to him. Be devoted to Him, to love Him, faithful to Him. And, and so it's God's mercy, but he, he gives them a long leash. He's, these kings are violent, they're greedy, they're oppressive, they're faithless, they're idolatrous, they're, they're awful, they're rebels against God. They do unbelievable harm to the nation. They, they, they persecute the Lord's people, they kill His prophets, they lead the, the nation right over the edge of the cliff. And yet God... They're not free. God is still sovereign over them. 
He's still in control. He's sovereign over the pagan nations that he sends against his people. His purposes aren't thwarted by them. He, his, his cause isn't ultimately threatened by their wickedness. And just a couple applications for us is, one, never underestimate the great damage that can be done by ungodly leaders. That, 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 that's true over nations, that's true over churches, that's true over families. Do enormous harm. So we're not, not taking that lightly. But also, don't begin to view wicked people, wicked men, wicked leaders as greater than God. They're on His leash. His power, His faithfulness, His love, His sovereignty, His sufficiency are greater. Now just think of Jeremiah. Again, thrown into a, a water cistern. And, and there and just floundering. And yet he, he's, he's, God brings him out of that, those dire circumstances again and again and again. And he continues to be, go back, plead with the king. To repent and return to the Lord. What, what motivates him? What gives him hope? What, uh, yes... What, what sustains him in that? What, in, in the book of Lamentations, this is, these are Jeremiah's groanings before the Lord over Jerusalem at this time and, and over his persecution before these wicked kings. And yet he says in verse 21 of chapter 3, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He's saying, I rest my mind. I call this to mind, so I have hope. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Those are not just empty, shallow words. Those Those are words born out of enormous suffering. And what seemed to be such hopeless circumstances. And he says, this, this I will say to my soul. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in Him. So this God's power. God's, this, the power of His love and His faithfulness. and his, That's His security that gives us hope. In times when it seems like wickedness is winning. Second lesson. Is that sin is incredibly boring. It is. I mean, if you're struggling to pay attention and stay awake during this part of the text, it's not the author's fault and it's certainly not the preacher's fault. Um, but, but what are we seeing here? Just persistent ungodliness and it's dull. It's boring. There's nothing exciting about habitual sin. <laughs> I mean, what the, uh, again, Davis, last time I'm quoting him for Kings, I promise. He says, drip, 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 drip. Four times we read, he did evil in the Lord's sight. Nothing exciting or refreshing here. Just the same stale stuff. None of the trembling of Hezekiah or the enthusiastic obedience of a Josiah that gives spice and flavor and drama to kingdom life. Actually, only holiness stirs and only godliness fascinates. I agree with that. That, that. that sin does provide some fleeting pleasures, we're told in the scripture. Hebrews eleven twenty five. But nothing, none of that compares with the surpassing value and enduring joy of knowing Christ. And living on mission with Him. 
And so you want to see excitement in Scripture, you're going to look in places like the book of Acts. Church is just set on fire with passion to know the Lord. There's nothing dull about their lives that are being leveraged for God's purposes and God's cause. That's a preview for next week's series. We're beginning next week. But I'm just going to give you one more quote, and I think this one's on the screen. J. Campbell White, who was the founder of the YMCA movement, he was an evangelical believer. But he says, nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of this life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. As if you want to, if you really want to live, you want joy and excitement and satisfaction of life. You align yourself with God's purposes, what He's doing in this world. Throw yourself into that. That's where it's at. It's not in the cotton candy pleasures of sin. And this is a constant warning in Kings for us: Don't waste your life. Third lesson. Is that the heart matters. I mean it really, really matters to God. We've noted this emphasis throughout Kings. The writer doesn't, he's not giving us all the historical details of Kings. Every, about with every King he says, if you really want to know about all this guy's political, military, uh, economic achievements, you go read someone else. This is what I want you to know. Whether his heart was wholly true to God. That's what the that's what the writer's been focused on throughout because that's what God cares most about. Did he please the Lord? Was was he devoted to the Lord? And it's from his heart. The kings were to walk before the Lord and love him. Uh, the king says with all their heart and with all their soul. Why was just Josiah commended by the Lord? It was because his heart was penitent for the Lord. I mean the heart of the heart is is the central focus. Kings, whether the kings did evil in the sight of the Lord or did right in the sight of the Lord, that was an overflow of the heart. And we we need to live out of that overflow. We do live out of that overflow. And so as we've studied kings, we should be asking ourselves, Father, help me. Am I tending my heart? Am I dealing with pride that lingers there? Am I, am I dealing with lust and anger and, and greed? Are there idols in my heart that I'm trusting in? This heart matters to God. He sees it. External conformity isn't going to cut it. Behavior modification isn't enough for God. He's a divine cardiologist and he sees right to our hearts. And that's where he wants to deal. And the last lesson, well, the last that we're talking, we'll take up here, is that idolatry never ends well. It never ends well. It, and we see this very obviously in, in Kings here. If Christ is not, though, the center of our hearts, something else will be. And as a result of substitute gods, and the result of substitute gods is always, is always discipline, destruction. You, you never win when you worship idols. Uh, and, and this is a dominant theme in Kings. Jeremiah says that the devastation will be so great in Jerusalem that that people from other lands will ask the question, why? Why is this happening? 
What they'll, they'll see what happened here. What in the world? And Jeremiah says, 22, verse 8 and 9, he says, And many nations will pass by the city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God, and worshipped other gods, and served them. And the only explanation is they've forsaken covenant faithfulness, and they've worshipped idols. We've seen a whole host of idols and kings from the Baal and, Ash, Baal and Asherah and the golden calves and the high places and on and on and on and stars. And, I mean, but, but for us, we've said this along the way, an idol to us is anything, anything you look to in order to give you what only Christ can give you. It's, you, you want hope, you want joy, you want satisfaction, you want comfort, you want security, you want meaning. That's, that's what Christ offers. And he's better than anything else we try to replace him with. And, and some of our idols are not morally wrong things, but, but when we begin to look to them for what Christ is wanting to give to us and provides for us, then they become, they become terrible things. So Jesus is better. We're going to sing this in a little bit. He's better than the idol of good health. He's better than the idol of... of of body image. He's better than the idol of money, of success, of, of a perfect marriage, family. It's better than a pain-free life. He's better than being respected or being self-sufficient, independent. He's better than any possession you could have, any material blessing. He's better than athletic abilities, young people, or achievements. He's better than hobbies, and your, whether it's sports or reading or whatever it is. He's better than your political viewpoints or ideals. He's better than being treated fairly. He's better than a good reputation. He's better than being in control. He's better than productivity. He's better than getting married, singles. He's better than having your needs met. He's better than any worldly pleasure. Food, sex, drugs, whatever it is. And uh, we've used many, I've asked many questions to kind of provoke you to think about the idols of your heart. I'll just throw three more up there on the screen. Just some idol identification questions. These are just three short ones. But first one is, am I willing to sin in order to get this? That's an idol. Second question is, am I willing to sin to keep from losing this? If it's something you have, and it may be just fine to have, but, but you'll do anything to keep from losing it. And then third, do I turn to this as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? Is this where you run when things get hard? This, this, this might be an idol. And I would say with the psalmist, Psalm 139, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me and, and, and lead me in the way everlasting. I mean, start there. Ask these questions. Pray that prayer. God, search my heart. And then I would encourage you to write down the top five potential idols, idols that maybe exist in your heart. It may not be, but just write them down. And then, and then go back and write the ways in which Christ can satisfy that desire of your heart better than those idols. And then I would encourage you just to share that with your spouse, with a friend. 
ask them to pray for you and, and help you and and ask you how you're doing in putting these idols, crushing them. Because sin problems are all ultimately worship problems. We've said that. We've seen that through Kings. All addictions are worship disorders. Um, and so... And you know, and this is the thing about idolaters. We never think we never think our idolatry is a problem. <laughs> but the writer of Kings, he puts it up in our face and says, "Hey, wait a second. I beg to differ. It's a big problem. It's a big problem." And in the final evaluation of your life, the God you worship is what matters most. Again, this is why John ends his letter, First John five, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, so we've seen four lessons from four losers. Now, let me just move quickly. We're going to see now one sad city. And we're just basically going to read this account. Chapter 25, we read this sad account of Jerusalem just getting leveled. And and this is the place where the Lord chose to put his name. The siege begins in 587 B.C. and it lasts until 586 when the city finally falls and is destroyed. Verse 3, chapter 25. On the ninth day of the fourth month, of the, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. There, I mean, you look at the parallels and they're resorting to cannibalism and it's just awful. It's just hard to even conceive. Then a breach was made in the city, verse 4, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden and the Chaldeans were around the city and they went in the direction of Erebon, including... Included with that group is the king, as we'll see, verse 5. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah. And bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. So the last thing Zedekiah gets to see is his sons being brutally executed in front of him. And that's the image that's burned in his brain when he goes to Babylon. Verse 8, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the king of the bodyguard, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down, and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. I was just thinking of the physicality of what that involved, breaking down city walls. That was hard work, but this, this, they're intent on just leveling this place. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. What a hard life that they faced. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea and that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans also and the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver. 
As for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. Can't even calculate this. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, a cubit's one and a half feet. And on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. The latticework and the pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in the command of the men of war and five men of the king's council who were found in the city and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Oh, it's awful. This is how Jeremiah opens Lamentations. And you can see why. And just on and on he goes like this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. And just goes on and on lamenting this scene. Verses 22 to 26, the Babylonian, uh, Babylon points a governor of over Judah, Gedaliah, and over who's left and what's left. He doesn't survive long. He's put to death by some members of the royal family, including Ishmael. They need a better king. They need a better king. This is awful. We need a better king. We need a better king than Zedekiah, who ran to escape suffering. We need a king who will enter into it. We need a a king who won't sacrifice the people for his own protection, but a king who will sacrifice his own life. To save his people. We need that king and we have that king. We have a better king in Jesus. And that's the second ending. And that's going to lead us right to the table this morning. Kings doesn't have a happy ending. But it has a hopeful ending. Um, it, the, the Lord has not forgotten his people in exile. So the final scene of kings. It takes place 26 years after the fall of Jerusalem. Jehoiakim is the last surviving successor of David's throne. He's still alive. Remember, he was taken to Babylon. He's now 55 years old, and we find that he's well cared for in Babylon. And so this interesting epilogue, the final words of kings, verse 27, And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the 12th month on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, on the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments. And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. That's it. Interesting ending, isn't it? So we have Nebuchadnezzar dies, his his son, evil Merodach, what a name that is. He reigns in his place in Babylon, and the, the Nebuchadnezzar pronounced judgment on Zedekiah, but but this latter king, he speaks kindly to Jehoiakim. 
who's still living. He receives a seat of honor. He dines every day at the king's table. And why is this important? What is the writer doing? He's showing that the line of David is continued. This is like the finding of Joash in the temple, the boy king, remember? And this is the same kind of thing. He miraculously survives the carnage of fall and exile. We've already noted that God promised to keep a lamp burning in Jerusalem. And here we're seeing God's faithfulness to do that. Even an evil king named evil can't stop that. The messianic hope here is not rooted in the goodness of Jehoiakim. We find there's nothing to indicate that his heart has changed. No, what this is rooted in is the mercy, faithfulness, and power of God. And, 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 and so... We skip ahead several hundred years and we find Matthew filling in the story for us. And he picks up the story and he's demonstrating just the breathtaking mercy and faithfulness of God. He turned to Matthew chapter 1 with me. Matthew chapter 1. And we can't read through the whole genealogy. But... What we find, Matthew is Matthew doesn't want us to miss a name, and for the sake of time, we, we will have to skip some names. But Matthew, one, he's, he's just showing how we get to Jesus. And he's showing these connections, and you start in verse 6, and he's talking of David, the father of Solomon, and father by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And he's marching through all these kings that we've studied over these many months now. You get to verse 11. And Josiah was the father of Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, that we're just talking about, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and on and on. You get down to verse 15, and Nathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And there is no other name listed after that, because there is no other king that's needed. He's the last. He's the greatest. He's the only king. He's the king for which all the other kings have been have been pointing toward by their failures. And so King in, Kings ends with, with this whisper of hope by saying Jehoiakim is dining at the king's table. But we have a living hope because we know the rest of the story. Our king has come. He's, he, he came and he lived a life we could never live. He came and he died a death that we, we couldn't die as our substitute for our sin, absorbing the wrath of God in our place. He came and he rose from the dead, defeating all of our enemies. He's come. And he's coming again. He's going to reign forever. And, and so we need a better king. And praise God, we have one. So I just echo First Timothy, this doxology. It's the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And it's him that we remember now as we come to the table. It's him. We have a better king. And the question we've asked over and over in kings. Were these kings faithful or were they unfaithful? And every one of them was ultimately unfaithful to the Lord. Nobody was perfectly faithful. We need a king who's called faithful and true. And again, we have one in Jesus. And the passion of Christ, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, it demonstrates, it's a statement of the faithfulness of God, that God promised some 4,000 years before Christ, that, that, that God, 
God promised to Adam and Eve that he would bring a descendant, a seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so man waited 4,000 years for that promise to be fulfilled, but God never forgot. And so the cross then is exhibit A that God keeps his promises. He's faithful. And Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. That's what he's saying. It's Sin has been atoned for. God's wrath has been fully satisfied. The serpent's head has been sufficiently stomped into the dust. It's crushed. The cross is also then our greatest hope. The greatest hope that we have as unfaithful, disloyal, disobedient, fickle, idolatrous sinners that we are. Our lives are full of the same unfaithfulness that the kings demonstrated words actions thoughts the answer is not just to be more faithful the answer is that we need help we need help that god has provided in himself and and on the same night uh, some two thousand years ago we see this sharp contrast between the evil of unfaithfulness and the beauty of faithfulness that, that on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus gathered his disciples together to celebrate the Passover. And this normal Passover meal proved to be anything but normal for the disciples. In Matthew 26, verse 20, he says, When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And, they were, and as they were eating, they, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of the twelve? These are his closest friends and companions that he's lived with now for three years. Betrayal? Disloyalty? unfaithfulness and they were sorrowful and began to say to him one after another is it i lord he answered he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me the son of man goes as it is written of him but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed it would have been better for that man if he had not been bored judas who would betray him answered is it i rabbi and he said to him you said so then jesus institutes the ordinance that we call the lord's supper Communion, Lord's table. And he calls on his followers to drink, eat and drink in remembrance of him. And that's what we'll do in a moment. Then they sang a hymn. They went to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus told Peter that all the disciples would fall away because of me this night. What does Peter say? Though all those other losers will fall away, Lord, I will never, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same, the text says. And the next scene is Gethsemane. And Jesus is sorrowful, he's troubled, even to the point of death. He's just physically coming unraveled because of grief, anticipating the cross. And his flesh is weak and he prays, if it's possible, let this cup of divine wrath pass from me. Nevertheless, Lord, not as I will, but as you will. What is that? Faithfulness. Faithful to death. Faithfulness that flows from selflessness, from sacrifice. The unfaithful, the untrue Judas shows up with armed soldiers to betray faithful and true. He could send for 12 legions of angels to come and rescue him, but he's faithful to the Father. And within a matter of hours, all of those disciples who said, we'll never, we'll never abandon you, we'll never deny you, even if we must die, they've all abandoned the Lord. They've all turned tail and ran away and snuck away in the cover of night. There's nobody left. It's only Jesus. 
Peter said, though all men will fall away, I will never leave you. But Jesus is the only one who can truthfully say, oh, you all leave me. Oh, you all fall away. I will never fail you. Because I'm faithful even to death. He suffered. He died alone. The sky went dark. All of God's furious wrath for our sin was unleashed upon Jesus during those hours of darkness on the cross. The willing, faithful sacrifice. The focus of the Lord's table, though, is not our unfaithfulness. It's Christ's faithfulness. That's what we're beholding. We're not coming here to to sit and stew over our sin. We're coming here to acknowledge our sin and then to revel in the grace of God and His faithfulness to us in Christ. That Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. And therefore we can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I invite you to come and worship with us and eat and drink and revel in the faithful and true one. The table is open to all who've put their trust in Christ. Who, If you've, if you've acknowledged you're a sinner, you, you know the gospel, you know that Jesus died for your sins, you've, you're putting all of your confidence, not in your ability to be a good person, but in what Christ has done, and you've done that. I I invite you to worship with us. You don't have to be a member of this local church. If, you, if you've not trusted in Christ, if you don't want to know what I mean, just let, it, let the plates pass. It's totally fine. Others will be doing the same, and, and you won't be singled out in any way. But we're going to come, we're going to eat, we're going to drink together. Let me pray, and then, and then deacons, you come and help us. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he was faithful, true, even to the end, even to the point of shedding his own blood for our sins. Accomplishing what we could never accomplish in our own. And thank you that he lives. Thank you that he's reigning now. Thank you that he's present with us, Lord, even as we eat and drink. Not in some mystical way through these elements, but Lord, he's the Lord of the church. He's, it's as if he's serving us even now and in, in our remembrance of him, Lord. So thank you for Jesus. May our love for him, delight in him, and our satisfaction in him grow even as we Rejoice in in His grace to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.